Michael, I was a little bummed when I woke up this morning. Why is that? My caps. My caps <laughs> lost last night. <laughs> a year on top. You kind of feel it coming. Uh, God. Back to the old ways. Yeah, the curse came back. Yeah. Game seven, overtime. Ugh. I'm really disappointed. I'm really upset about this. I was. It's just, it's, I can feel it coming now. I don't have anything to watch. Got nothing. Got nothing. Nothing. I, it, losing Oshi, I think, is the difference. I'm, the I'm one thing that was the saving grace is that uh, I knew I was going to get to talk to Nero Tan today. <laughs> <laughs> That perked me up. That got me going. I, that got me out of bed. Can't out of imagine. My depression. I can't imagine it equalizes out. But you know, <laughs> it's nice of you to try. <laughs> um, hey, folks. Uh, this is Doug Thornell. Uh, I am running solo today. My partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, is taking a short vacation. Uh, I miss her, but uh, I'm excited to have across from me Nira Tandon. Uh, Nira is the president and CEO of the Center for American Progress and the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Uh, before joining CAP Action, she worked as a key member of the health reform team of former President Barack Obama, where she helped to develop and pass the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. She also managed all domestic policy initiatives during Obama's first presidential campaign and has served in uh, several leadership roles for uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And at CAP Action, uh, Nero is focused on building the grassroots opposition uh, to Donald Trump's agenda and on developing an alternative agenda that will expand opportunity for all Americans. So we are delighted to have... um, this real leading thinker in the progressive world on the electables. Nira, welcome. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get started, we always like to ask our guests, how did they get their start in politics? <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, really in college. I was, uh, I, was, I was a precinct leader on the Dukakis campaign really? <laughs> when I graduated from college. Uh, right at the end of my graduation, uh, I introduced... Uh, Bill Clinton spoke at UCLA during the, when I'm totally aging myself, the 90, 1992 Democratic primary, the last event of the primary season was at UCLA. Uh, and I introduced him. And then uh, I started working on the campaign as was really like a minion, I think was my official title after that. Uh, <laughs> Y'all got to start somewhere. <laughs> but it was really, it was really exciting. And so uh, after that, soon after that, I went to law school. And then I came, when I graduated from law school, I ended up working in the Clinton White House, which was a, a incre- it was an incredible lucky opportunity. Uh, so you know, my break came from, or how I got involved is just being a volunteer in a campaign, and and I got the bite and the drive from then on. Campaigns are an amazing experience, aren't they? They are. You know, it was it was truly fascinating. So I was in I was in Los Angeles in 1992, and it, there had been 12 years of Republican rule, and in in that campaign, actually, you know, there were people who came from all walks of life. We had directors and screenwriters, as well as people who have been in politics for a long time. But, you know, they were really motivated. Uh, You know, there's so much cynicism now, but really all these people were motivated about trying to make change in the country and have a a break from 12 years of Republican rule. And 
and uh, all these people like worked night and day to elect Bill Clinton at a time where California was still a swing state. <laughs> just yeah. to say how long ago that it's was. It's funny to think that it actually was. I mean, I guess Clinton, uh, George H.W. Bush won it in 88. And he then, did by two points. Yeah. And then uh, obviously Reagan won it uh, in 84. But there was a point in time where California was a swing state. It's hard to think of it that I way. I mean, Reagan was governor for a long time. Right. And so it's, uh, yeah, it was, a, I mean, it was, it was almost a Republican bastion, yeah. Nixon, Reagan. Um, and so uh, I find it, it was obviously very different now, um, but it was a fascinating time to be there in 82. And also, you know, again, people... Uh, you know, I think people watch like too much television, and and obviously Donald Trump makes every single human being cynical about politics. <laughs> so, you know, I I understand that, but I would say uh, campaigns, uh, great campaigns, bring people together around a movement for change, and that is exactly what it felt like. Uh, I remember I used to do the clips in the morning, and oh, one yeah. of the guys I did the clips with was a documentary film producer. <laughs> I was like, wow, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, and he was like, this is the thing I can do to help. Right. You know, I just can come in in the morning, do the clips, and then, like, go on with my day. And this is something I can do to help. So I'm going to do it because this election is so important. And, you know, I think that's what makes elections exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing volunteers come in to just stuff envelopes or make phone calls. Yeah. And some of these folks are doctors, lawyers, even if, you know, they, they can be anything. But they're, you know, they're doing their part. Most of them, you know, most people who are on campaigns don't get paid. Yeah, I mean, just and and it was so great in 2018. I I did a, a fair amount of campaigning in a lot of the swing districts. I I went door to door for Abigail Spanberger. I went into other districts, and you see the same thing. It's a lot of people, especially in that last several days. A lot of people just come in to do what they can to make sure our democracy works, yeah. right? And there's a lot of people motivated to you know ensure that we have a different direction against Trump and that came out in 2018. And that was, you know, that's exciting. And like, you know, I mean, it is actually what a democracy rests on, you know, actual voters doing things to care about the election. Right. And, you know, it's not just, you know, obviously like having, when you have working class folks who are working 10, 12 hours a day, who aren't making a lot of money, who have taken care, who have families to take care of, but they're still finding that time to go door to door and stuff. And, you know, I mean, that is, I think that's the beauty of campaigns. That's what I. That's how I got my start mm. on the Gore campaign. That's how I. You know, I mean, I fell in love with it. Yeah. And, um, it's. Uh, I really encourage all young people to do to do a campaign. Yeah. Uh, especially a presidential. Uh, really, at any at any size, but I think a presidential campaign uh, is is unique in that you do feel like it's a movement around the it's a movement about the country's future yeah um, whatever the campaign is is always about the country's future and so um, you know I'm I, and I think there'll be a lot of enthusiastic volunteers this year around too so tell us quickly what's the difference between cap and mm-hmm. cap action fund Great question. Uh, the Center for American Progress is a research institute and ideas institute. So its focus is on developing ideas and policies uh, that can you know, solve the problems the country faces, from jobs and wages to education to health care. Uh, we also do take on conservative arguments. So when Trump has you know, a tax cut that doesn't work, our economic policy team can say, you know, it's it will drive inequality or drive uh, increased taxes for a lot of middle class people. So we do that level of analysis. Our C4 is Center for American Progress Action Fund is our advocacy arm. So it 
deals. It is working in the political process to move ideas. And uh, and sometimes it engages really directly in the political process. So in the last uh, election cycle, in the midterms, they worked, the, the C4 uh, War Room, it's a communications vehicle, worked directly with uh, 26 con- congressional candidates and really tried to drive the debate around health care. So this, you know, they used uh, information about uh, how much people lose health care by congressional district, how much premiums would increase, what the loss of pre-existing conditions would do. And, and anyway, I think we were helpful in moving that conversation in the districts to health care at a time where Trump was trying to move it or keep it on immigration or his last crazy attack on some member of Congress or private person. As a former Hill staffer, I worked really closely with uh, staffers at CAP mm-hmm. on policy issues. I mean, and you're you know, instrumental and key to, um, you know, to a lot of the work that happens on the Hill and, uh, and, and not just on the Hill, uh, elsewhere too. But, um, I mean, I just remember, particularly during the healthcare debate, just how yeah. critically important CAP was during that uh, process. And also, you know, during other important conversations that occurred, um, whether it's on the economy, national security. So, you know, for folks who don't know CAP, they're like, right at the they're like the hub of <laughs> progressive policy in in this town and it also obviously spreads beyond Washington. Yeah, and I'd say healthcare is a great example of our work over the long term. So in 2005 we developed the idea that became the framework of the Affordable Care Act and then we you know we held a forum in 2007 with SEIU in Las Vegas on healthcare and uh, a lot of the candidates adopted that framework post that event and uh, and President Obama adopted that framework for when he was in uh, running for office but obviously m- most importantly when he was president and we worked very closely with the hill uh, to help pass the Affordable Care Act and and have been defending it ever since and one of the most important things we you know, I think we've done in the last two years is we helped lead the fight to defend the ACA um, as Republicans were trying to repeal it. And I think this is uh, the President Trump's failure to pass uh, his uh, his gutting of the ACA has been a kind of seminal failure for him and pushed him back uh, on a number of other issues. CAP Action Fund and SEIU mm-hmm. are hosting another forum, <laughs> this time in Las Vegas, April 27th, this coming Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an it's an economic presidential forum. You have some of the leading candidates mm-hmm. uh, on the Democratic side who will be attending. Uh, tell us about the event. Yeah, so we're really excited. Uh, we have uh, a lot of the presidential candidates coming, Senator Harris, Senator Warren, Congressman O'Rourke, Julian Castro. Um uh, Senator Klobuchar, uh, Governor Hickenlooper, and our, you know, we're, our, our animating idea here was very similar to what our animating idea was 12 years ago, which is this is a central issue, the economy and wages, ensuring uh, that the debate is around economy, the economy and wages and what the next president, the Democratic president, will do on those issues. And you know, there's, uh, as you know, uh, campaigns can really be on every kind of issue. And in the Trump era, he's able to dominate the headlines a lot. But we think fundamentally voters are going to be thinking about visions for the future and what that candidate for president will do about their lives. And as we saw in the uh, midterms, 
the issues, you know, really kitchen table issues matter to voters. People are listening for what you're going to do about their life. So as in a time where Trump is uh, spends all of his time basically being a chaos president, it's really vital that uh, candidates, and, you know, I think all candidates, actually focus on solutions that make a difference in people's lives. Um, and it's harder in this environment. It's harder to break through. It's harder to get coverage on these issues. But I think that me- that's one of the reasons why we thought it was important to do this forum now, so early in the process, ahead of the debates. So it really pushes candidates to think through what is their agenda to help families do better in this economy. The macro numbers look pretty good in the economy, right? Unemployment is low, um, and GDP has been fine. Uh, but you know, we ha- we still have this fundamental problem, which is that wages have been stagnant for a lot of people uh, while costs go up, and we need uh, we can't ignore that problem. If Demo, you know, if I've learned anything, it's that people will take an answer over a bad answer over no answer. So we think it's really important that uh, all the candidates have an answer on economic growth and how to improve, you know, really the jobs and wages that people, middle class families, and people want to get into the middle class are experiencing. How'd you pick Vegas as the location? <laughs> so you know, it's I, not a bad place to hold a forum, by the way. <laughs> well, I really several reasons. Uh, obviously, it's an early state in the right. primary, but it's February twenty second. February twenty second, but it's also a swing state in the general. Right. I mean, it's it's been moving to the Democrats, but it's definitely still, a state where still very much a yeah, purple it's, state. It's very much a purple state, um, and uh, has had a you know Republican governors and Republican senators for a long time. So uh, that was really important. Also, we think it is vitally important to uh, address the broad ranges of constituents within the Democratic Party. Uh, Las Vegas, but really all of Nevada, is a pretty diverse state, has a large Latino population, and also has a large Asian American population. Um, and we think that it's it's really vital that all of these issues get raised. Also, uh, Las, uh, Las Vegas and even um, uh, Nevada, have they have strong unions there, uh, but it is a state that has had precarious economic growth because the tourism industry is so important. You know, they were hit really hard post-recession. Um, so because tourism took such a, such a hit, and then after that, the housing crisis really hit Nevada hard. And so, you know, they're a state that kind of recognizes the precariousness of the economy and why we need strong long-term ideas to actually help people, help middle-class families. So we have the most diverse presidential field in the history of uh, politics. Mm-hmm. As a woman of color, what does that mean to you? You know, I am genuinely uh, thrilled by the field. I think there is incredible talent. When people say, you know, when they're when they're sort of negative about the talent, I I like scratch my head because I mean, I engaged. I was in part of the two thousand seven two thousand eight primary process. I worked for Hillary in the primary and worked for then Senator Obama in the general, and that was a great field. It's a right. great, talented field of people. And, you know, I think the talent in this field is as good, if not better. I mean, we have fantastic candidates. And as a woman of color, I am 
thrilled that there's not one woman carrying the weight. There are many women. Right. I'm as a woman of color. I'm thrilled that there's not one candidate of color. There's multiple candidates of color. Right. And I do think that there's a kind of complicated um, anxiety in the party, or a kind of a complicated factor, which is because Trump is so racist and misogynist, and I'll just say that in my view, he is You can say that on this podcast. (laughs) He is racist and misogynist and xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBT, the whole slew. I think that there are some people who are anxious about having a woman candidate or a person of color uh, candidate. And, you know, I hope what happens throughout this process is that we see (laughs) that the most important thing is having the talent and ability to put together a broad coalition to take on Donald Trump. What I was so thrilled by in 2018 is that you had fantastic candidates like um, now Congresswoman McBath, uh, now Congresswoman Underwood, two African-American women who were in districts that were majority white and were able to put together a coalition of white voters in pretty conservative places. These are places that lean Republican. And I, I'm hoping that, um, you know, people are at least open that that is possible in the Trump era. And I, while I think there are really talented candidates, obviously the vice president has entered, um, Better O'Rourke, um, Mayor, I'll just go with Mayor Pete. <laughs> You're not going to try to pronounce his last name. <laughs> you know, I just don't want to do it wrong. But uh, I think they're fan- They're also talented. I just don't, I just hope everyone gives a fair hearing to everybody. Right. I have to ask you because uh, the vice president did announce that he mm-hmm. is uh, formally announced today that mm-hmm. he was jumping into the race through a video. Um, you worked in the Obama Biden administration. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, the vice president and uh, what are you looking to see hear from him on the campaign? So, uh, you know, I think the most important thing is um, the vice president has a great reservoir of support in, in, in the grassroots in the country. There's like, for those of us who are on Twitter, there's like the Twitterverse, but you know, the Twitterverse is not real life. And uh, he has, a, a if you look at polls, he has the most support of any candidate and the widest support of any candidate. And what I think the vice president has to do is to address, you know, what he will do as president to move the country forward in the 21st century. You know, he's a candidate with a long history. Uh, you know, as he's announced, they've showed video clips from him from the 70s. But I think every election is about the future. And in the Trump era, the ele- elections are really about change. You know, over the last several election cycles, almost every election cycle, every election has been about change. 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012 was the only year we basically ratified the president and, and a lot of Demo- Democrats came in. Uh, but, you know, every 2016 was also a change election. 2018 was a change election. 2020 will be a change election. There are a lot of arguments to make about Donald Trump. But fundamentally, I think over the cycle, the vice president has to do whatever other candidate has to do, which is provide a vision of how he's going to make change in people's lives. Uh, name one economic policy idea that uh, you can name more than one, but uh, that you've heard from the candidates who are running that really impresses you. 
So I think um, there's there's a few. There's a few. Uh, uh, so uh, Senator Warren has done a, a few proposals. She yep. has a great proposal on antitrust. I mean, it's really focused on technology. But I do think one of the problems in our economy is that we have giant conglomerations of companies that make it harder for uh other companies to innovate and do have the power to kind of drive down wages. It's a complicated topic, uh, but I think she's handled it really well. I'm a huge fan of her child care policy. I should say CAP put forward a universal child care policy a few years ago. Senator Murray has taken it up and also shaped it in her policy. Senator Warren's policy is is uh, different, but in, in similar scope to the policy we put forward. So I think that is really important. Obviously, there's a big focus on wages. People have been for the $15 minimum wage. I do think it's important for more candidates to focus on how they want to improve, you know, basically the bottom line, bottom line for working families. Uh, Kamala Harris has a middle class tax cut that's really focused on working families and middle class families and allowing them to afford more in their lives. And I think that's one of the ideas that could be really important at general election. One of the things that concerns me uh, as someone who works with candidates is the at the national level, the lack of a coherent economic narrative uh, mm-hmm. within the Democratic Party on the progressive or the progressive community. Mm-hmm. We have a bunch of ideas, but there's the narrative, the story that we want to tell voters seems to get a little mushy. Yeah. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on what, what you think are – economic narrative should be? So I think I'm hoping actually in the forum uh, that candidates will really address this because, you know, at the heart of it, Donald Trump had a bait and switch in his election. He had an, he had a policy, you know, in the election, he sounded like an economic populist that was going to be a fighter for the middle class. And then he came in as president and has been essentially, you know, the same tired Republican view, which is basically you give tax cuts to the wealthy and companies and it'll trickle down to people. And I, I hope what we'll see is actually an economic argument, which is not just a critique of what Donald Trump is doing, but an actual argument, which is the reason why it's important to raise wages, the reason why it's important to have policies that ensure that the middle class can thrive, is that when the middle class thrives, when wages are higher, you have actually more stable and sustainable economic growth. So if you just compare a few states, there are some states that are low wage and low tax. There are some states like California that have higher taxes but have invested in education. And they're the states that have innovated the most. I mean, if you look at where innovation is happening, it's happening in states that have a robust education system, a good higher education system. And sometimes that takes taxes, but it also means that they have an infrastructure that supports innovation. And Um, I'm hoping that actually presidential candidates will talk about a vision for the future that really drives at why Trump isn't just bad for working families, but his economic argument is is a worse one. And I don't think it'll be easy because, like, unemployment is low and he champions the economy. The truth is that wages are still pretty stuck for working class families throughout the country. And that is an argument that I think Democrats have to prosecute. A recent Morning Consult poll, uh, Morning Consult runs these mm-hmm. omnibus polls on a pretty weekly, I think a weekly basis, uh, found that voters trust, well, first of all, 
they found that the most important issue to voters right now is economic issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's obviously perfect timing that you're doing this forum. <laughs> uh, but I think 25% of voters had that as number one, and then healthcare was around in 17, or, eight, mm -hmm. uh, 17 or 18 points. Um, but they also found that voters trust congressional Republicans over congressional Democrats to handle the economy. It was this narrow lead, 41-38, but it was still a lead nonetheless. And then it, it was actually more pronounced when you ask people who were making $50,000, $100,000. So what we think of as our middle class they favored the they favored congressional Republicans over Democrats by over ten points. These were sort of con they were very alar alarming numbers mm -hmm. to me, um, and I think it goes back to sort of the lack of the narrative that exists. But what um, and we touched on this a bit. But what do you what are Dems doing wrong in terms of how they're talking about the economy? Because there was a point in time where we actually did a a good job on this question. It's not just the economy either. It's jobs. So they asked yeah. the the question about. Uh, who do you favor more or, or trust more on the economy? And they also asked the same one on jobs. And both of them, Republicans had an advantage. And so I, I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts is, you know, what do you think Dems have not been doing well? Well, I think one of the problems for Democrats, and this has always, this has been a problem uh, for the last couple of years, is that Trump has such an ability to control the narrative that uh, that it's just hard to break through. What really happened in 2018 is Democrats spent had a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. Democratic candidates had a lot of resources so they can overwhelm on the air on health care. But it's really hard to get through. But that's, you know, that's why one of the reasons why we were holding this forum, because we think actually presidential candidates are getting covered. And so they, it's important for them to talk about these issues regularly. And you know, fundamentally, we have Sherrod Brown was, um, you know, flirting with a presidential run. And I think he had a really important focus, which is the the job of a president is to be focused on jobs with dignity for all right. Americans. And I think that, you know, there's policies to get behind that. But it's it's what you say, what a presidential candidate says, how they spend their time, he or she spends their time, communicates what their priorities are. And if they're not talking about jobs with dignity or a, an agenda on wages or economic issues, and they're instead talking about, um, you know, some of the, instead talking about some of, you know, the crazy things Trump says, they're falling for the bait of Trump instead of getting outside of it. And that's why, again, we thought this forum was one way to do it, but it's really important for all of us to push candidates and, you know, on these issues. And go when you go into a town hall with a candidate, my friends in the swing states, you know, really ask them about what their economic program is because, uh, you know, people are less likely to vote on Trump's tweet than they, you know, they are to vote on uh, which candidate actually can make a difference in their lives. I think if we learn one thing from the 2018 midterms, it's that voters do fundamentally care about kitchen table issues. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot swirling around in 2018. The phony caravan and a lot of things that Trump was doing and saying. But when it came down to it in, um, you know, a lot of targeted yeah. House districts, health care was the number one concern from voters or around the number right around yeah. you know, with with the economy. Uh, and Democrats were able to to make to win that argument and win those races. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one challenge we have and uh, it'll I think it'll be even more pronounced is we can't forget that Trump 
because the media covers him all the time in every way, he has an ability to define his opponents. Um, so, you know, it, 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 the fact that he was talking about immigration and the caravan at the end did have an impact. Now, what was also important is that as he's talking about those issues, we also learned can, voters are actually listening to what matters in their lives. So pre-existing conditions resonated with a lot of voters because they could actually imagine what it would mean for their child or their brother or their family member if they lost that protection. So I think the lesson here is you have to talk to people's lived experiences and you have to talk to it may not get covered every day it may not make the the msnbc or 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 cnn but candidates who are actually voters are so um you know they're so attuned to these things so they know that when you talk about an issue it's a priority for you so they have an expectation that it'll actually be something that matters. Even if it doesn't get covered, I always tell people, talk about the things that matter in people's lives. Because the Twitter fights, you know, a lot of people just expect that Trump is a bad guy. But they're actually just looking. But, you know, they, to be honest, they think a lot of politicians are bad guys. And so <laughs> what they're looking for is an answer to, like, their life and right. someone who's focused on their life. I actually think that Trump's giving us a big opening because he wasn't talking about the economy at the end of the 2018 midterm. No, I mean, he rarely well, actually talks a lot about the economy when you would think maybe he should because it could, you know, it's a strength for he the Republicans think it's a strength for them. Yeah, and he rarely talks about it. He will occasionally reference unemployment. Everything's numbers, fantastic. But he does. They don't talk at all about the tax reform bill. Yeah. They so know it's unpopular. I don't know if you want to speak to that. But, I, I have a theory of that, which yeah. is that he knows that the tax bill didn't really do anything. It was it, it did very little for working class voters, uh, working class white voters or working class voters of any kind. And his base is working class white voters, particularly men, and it wasn't a motivating factor for them. But immigration was a much more motivating factor. And so I think that's why I think this is a big opportunity. I think Democrats could actually talk about their vision on the economy to express the uh, express their values of how an economy actually should be driven about driven around higher wages for workers and their families, um, not tax policies that benefit the super rich. And that's not that's not a highly populist argument. Trump almost made it a couple of years ago, right? right? So, but now he's living with the results, which is this economy is. You can say it's better or slightly better, but it's fundamentally the same economy that Obama was running on, and he had a deep criticism of that. So I think that's an opportunity for Democrats to talk about. Wages have been stuck for decades. We need to figure out, particularly for people who don't have a college degree, we need to figure out a better set of answers for folks. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think voters know they were sold a bunch of lemons with that tax bill, and they're you know they're fi- we went through tax day file you know people yeah. They were expecting a big windfall. They didn't really get a lot of refunds. Right. No, most people think it hurt them. Yeah. Um, I hope Democrats can figure out how to, you know, exploit that. And, yeah. Um, and put forward a, you know, a, a middle class, you know, a, a, a plan for folks who aren't in the top 1%, um, a tax plan that really will make a difference in people's lives. Yeah. Uh, so, um if you were advising one of these candidates, what's like a big idea that you would encourage them uh, to endorse? 
on well, the economic <laughs> big idea. Oh, in the economic space. Uh, so we had, uh, you know, we have uh, we proposed a, a, a limited jobs guarantee in places where we haven't had economic growth. So, you know, one of the challenges in our economy is that uh, growth has been really bifurcated. In fact, cities are doing really well, or most of cities are doing really well. Um, rural places and parts of cities are, are falling behind. So we think, you know, a big investment in jobs with dignity in places that we really need it. Infrastructure, long-term care, childcare. These are needs everyone has. Um, and a targeted job strategy would actually get jobs to people who are, who, uh, who are falling behind. And, you know, one of the things that we think is important is that Trump is going to spend all of his time over the next two years, uh, uh, or less, hopefully, hopefully. Um, uh, trying to divide people against each other. See uh, city people against rural people, rural people really against city people, blacks against whites, or really whites against blacks. And we need a whole range of ideas, economic ideas as well, that kind that try to uh, pull people together. So our jobs plan um, would create jobs in places that have uh, have been left behind by economic growth, both urban and rural, uh, heavy emphasis on places that um, have been, uh, have have seen sort of a decline in living standards, which is a lot of rural places around the country. So uh, last question, um, and thank you for being so generous with your of time. Um, it's on healthcare. Uh, mm-hmm. You were obviously very instrumental in helping to get the uh, ACA Obamacare passed and signed into law. And as you mentioned, CAP has been at the forefront of defending it against efforts by Republicans to repeal and replace it or just repeal it uh, over the last eight or nine years. Um, what are your thoughts on can- on the candidates running, not just candidates, but Democrats who have embraced Medicare for all, mm-hmm. which would essentially <laughs> get rid of the ACA, which you worked so long on helping to get passed. <laughs> so, um, you know, actually, I actually think that the reason why we're having a debate about the future of healthcare is because we passed the ACA. So I, I don't begrudge people wanting to think through, you know, how do we get to truly universal health care? How do we, you know, how do we make progress on health care? Premiums are too high for people. Farm drug costs are still big challenge. So I, I I don't begrudge that at all. In fact, I think it's a sign of the projection you make any time in policy. You pass one thing and then build on it. Bill Clinton passed a massive expansion of the earned income tax credit in the 90s. Barack Obama built on that. You know, I think you see that in policy across the board. I, I do think, I think there are two things. One, it's hard to pass big pieces of legislation. So just be mindful of that. It's not easy. The ACA was very hard to pass. I still, I mean, just recovering from my PTSD from that experience. But, you know, I mean, it's not an easy, easy thing to do. The other thing I would say is um, I think in the healthcare debate, there is um, kind of a weird thing where people think that it's just, you know, there's Medicare for all, or nothing. And 
CAP has put forward its own plan, which is a universal health care plan, uh, which dramatically makes sure everyone uh, is in the Medicare system. But if you have employer-based coverage, you can keep what you have, and um, and it's much less costly than a Medicare for All program. And there's been, I think there's a healthy debate about those two options about going forward um, between single payer and our version. But I think one thing you have to be mindful of is that uh, Healthcare is different from every other issue in that everyone feels like a little bit of an expert on healthcare. You know, a lot of people don't know energy, like the ins and outs of energy policy or financial regulatory reform, and the tax code is kind of a big blur to them. But when you talk about healthcare, everybody has an experience with healthcare. They think about the care of their child or the care of their parent. I mean, it's a very personal, very personal, very personal experience, and people are much more wary of change because. You know, this is a very personal decision that they, uh, you know, that they undertake. And so there was sometimes criticism of, um, of fewer steps than Medicare for all or single payer because, you know, the argument is that insurance companies want us to do something or pharma wants us to do something. But really, I think one thing everyone has to grapple with is that the public likes their health insurance, and we have to address the fact that the public often, not always, that has employer-based coverage likes their health insurance, and change is very hard. So um, I think what's good about having this debate between single-payer and maybe our approach or just buy-ins, and a lot of candidates have endorsed all of those options, I think one of the really good parts of that is that you can have a year-long debate where people recognize and have a full understanding of what the options are. That happened in 2007 and with the debate between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And I actually think it strengthened then-President Obama's ability to pass the ACA because it wasn't like coming out of nowhere. It's like everyone had heard almost too much about health care during right. the primary. So I think that's going to be a healthy part of this process. The wonderful Neera Tandon. <laughs> Thank you. Right back at you, my friend. <laughs> uh, so how can we, if we can't be in Vegas, unfortunately, I can't be in Vegas. Oh, that's a bummer for us. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think that we'll have. How can we watch the forum? Uh, so I think there'll be a fair Live stream? Ma- it'll, there's a live stream of it on YouTube. Cap, if you go to American Progress, uh, our, our website, uh, they'll point to you to uh, the, the live stream. Uh, there will be a fair amount of coverage on MSNBC and CNN uh, and various outlets of it throughout the day as well. And the moderator is? Stephen Greenhouse, who covered uh, economic issues for The New York Times. Well, it's going to be really exciting. It will be. I'm excited to see everybody out there. Thank you so much for joining uh, joining us today. Thank you so much for having and me. It was a great back, conversation. Come back whenever. Happy to, happy to do it. Thank you. All right. So, folks, tune in to the Economic Forum that CAP and SEIU are hosting this uh, Saturday. Uh, This has been Doug Thornell, and catch us next time on the next edition of The Electables.